What a great introduction to 1 Corinthians 13. What's love got to do with it? Shelly's been at the women's retreat, so she'd mentioned some stains in the sink, and I got in. Boy, I tell you, I could not get those stains out. I tried everything, all kinds of concoctions. Elbow grease, of course. Finally, I got a pumice stone and got those sinks clean and made the bed and did all kinds of good stuff so when she gets home. But without love, I am nothing. You know, we love right where we're at in the situation we are. We put that into action. And, uh, and yet when Paul says on a grand scale, if I give all I have, I lay down my without love, I'm nothing. I think it brings to the surface and to light that God's goal for us is in the character of Jesus Christ. And that goal is that we, even as God is love, we should become increasingly people possessed by the love of God in all we do, the little and the big things. And here we see the little and the big of it in 1 Corinthians 13. So let's read it together. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now, we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then, we shall see face to face. Now, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What's love got to do with it? Dave Barry wrote an article, Things That Took Me 50 Years to Learn. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Barry's work. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer and author syndicated columnist. He mixes wisdom with humor. 
I think that's his, his gift. In this article, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. There's lots of sugar. For example, Barry advises, never lick a steak knife. I hope it didn't take him 50 years. Another piece of advice, and I know he only learned this recently, uh, never under any circumstances take a sleeping pill and laxative the same night. I had to ask someone older than me what that means. But there's medicine, too. This lesson was sobering to me. A person who is nice to you but rude to the waiter is not a nice person. As Paul said, love is not rude. Nice to some but rude to others is selective picky love. It's lopsided love. Not God's agape love. Clearly, God's love is not selective. Not picky. Not lopsided. In fact, in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36, Jesus says among other things, this. And the whole theme is consistent. But he says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That's not picky love. That's not selective love. Then he added, and this in verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. You see, there's nothing godly about that love. Even sinners love those who love them. What Jesus is calling us to is to love our enemies and those who mistreat us. That's an extraordinary love. That's a love that's larger than life. That's the love of the gospel. That's God's agape love. Jesus goes even further. Barry, of course, has learned that the way you treat a waiter reveals the kind of person you really are. That's why he can say, the person who's nice to you but rude to the waiter is not a nice person. Jesus takes this a step further. In Luke 6, he says, when you love all people, even enemies, I'm paraphrasing, when you love all people, not just a few, not just picking, cherry picking, but loving all people, even enemies, it shows your pedigree. It shows your heritage. It shows that you are a child of God. Because that kind of love is not the kind of love sinners 
do, but only the children of God. The kind of love that is exercised even when wronged, even when insulted, even when belittled. John the Apostle caught what Jesus was saying. In his first letter to the churches of Asia Minor, he says, this is how God showed His love among us. This is in 1 John 4, verses 9-10. through 10. And it's a, it encapsulates the Gospel. It's a summarization of the Gospel in, in a very concise wording. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that, he, that we might live through Him. He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. An atoning sacrifice is a sacrifice, in effect, that pays the debt for the wrong. His life was an atoning sacrifice. That's what His love does. It doesn't wait for you to pay the debt on the wrong that you have done to Him. He takes the initiative. He first loved us. And now He calls us to do the same. To love in that same way. That's a beautiful summary, but what is eye-catching is the application that follows in verse 11 and 12. Since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And then he follows that with this extraordinary statement. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. What's he saying? He doesn't break off and talk about the invisibility of God. What he talks about is that when we love as God has loved us, people see God in us. Just as Jesus said, when we love like that, it shows our pedigree. It shows the love of God. It shows the difference God makes in a life. This is not that we should step back and be elite. This is that we should shine in the dark. This is a wonderful time. This time right now in which we live to love others. Not that we should pick and choose our time, but now is the time to get started. And there's no better because we live in a rude world. It needs to see the love of God. If, if the Dave Barrys of this world know the difference between a person who's nice to them but rude to the waiter, I think they'll notice. They'll see. At least we'll give them the opportunity. What John is saying is God is made visible in the love we show others. Now, when I think of loving, you might think of the dramatic, larger-than-life occasions. Love, big and small, reveals the atoning love of God. And although it's easier to see God's love in dramatic fashion in larger-than-life examples, much easier it's important that we not overlook the little things, the treatment of a waiter, 
the treatment of one another, how we behave in the grocery store, in all areas of life. I want to stress again, it's easier to see the power and the impact of love in the larger-than-life acts of love than kindness to a waiter. Let me give you a couple of examples. I grew up with the knowledge of five men who gave their lives in an effort to reach a very remote, very primitive tribe of Indians in Ecuador, in the, in the rainforest of Ecuador. It all kind of started when a young girl from that tribe escaped to civilization because it was known as a very violent, vicious tribe. Some say one of the most cruel and violent cultures known to the history of man. This young girl escaped, and the sister of, uh, of uh, a Nate Saint, who was a pilot of this uh, mission to, to reach these people, the eventual mission, uh, she became acquainted with this girl, learned this language, and started the process of wanting to reach them for Christ. Well, the first meeting that these, these men had with, they were called Aka Indians, but that was actually a name given to them by, their, by people that, it means enemy. That's how they viewed the Waodani, as they call themselves. And the first contact with the Waodani, it was so remote they had to fly in by plane. They landed on a, on a, a sand bank by, by a river, and they exchanged gifts, and it was pleasant enough. They came back following Sunday, January 8, 1956, and the warriors met them and speared them and killed all five. They were motivated by love. They met death at the end of a spear. But that's not the whole story. It's how the... The members of their family, for example, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, and others continued to reach out to those who had killed their loved ones. They knew the risks. Jim, Ill Jim Elliott said, and he was only 28 when he died, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What he cannot lose is not only his heritage, his inheritance in Christ, but that which touched his life in the first place, and that is the love of God. Romans 8, Paul says nothing. And he gives a long list of things that could that could impede and stop us in our human tracks, but not the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, Paul says. Nate Saint was the pilot, as I mentioned. movie was made called Into the Spear. His own son was, was a prime mover in the making of that movie. He himself lived with the Waodani along with his Aunt Rachel, 
his uh, dad's sister. He asked his dad before he took off, he said, Dad, if the Waodani attack, will you defend yourself? Use your guns. Son, he said, we can't shoot the Waodani. They're not ready for heaven. We are. That, that tribe, that savage tribe was transformed by the sacrificial love of God that changed the hearts of people that reached them with the same, same love. But that redemption that came and came over time came at the price of elective, not selective love. Elective love. They chose to love. Because God chose to love us. He first loved us. Second example, I'm so mindful of, it immediately comes to mind when I think of the larger than life. I mean, these dramatic acts of love where we can see so clearly, even at a distance, what God is doing. It shows so much, the love of God. Five years ago, almost to the day on October 4th, 2006, a man who ran a milk route, Charles Carl Roberts, went into a one-room Amish schoolhouse in Iron Mines community carrying guns. He went into that schoolhouse and sent out the boys, sent out the adults, tied up ten young women, just girls, six to thirteen years of age, and killed five. When the police came, Roberts fired 18 shots, 10 of them directly at the heads of those girls. Five of them were immediately killed. One will be on life support the rest of her days. Four have healed enough to go back to school, but they'll bear the scars of that shooting the rest of their lives. What was significant was the way the Amish responded. They did not respond with hate or vengeance, but with love and forgiveness. The families of the victims took their daughters home. They laid them out for people to see in all the rawness of what had taken place. But that very afternoon, two of the elders from the Amish community went to the shooter's wife and three children, told them they were forgiven, and that the Amish community held nothing against them. The Amish did more than that. They gave Robert's wife money to take care of the funeral expenses and additional money to take care of their expenses after her husband was buried. You see, her husband, Charles Carl Roberts, had turned the gun on himself. And when they had the funeral for Charles Carl Roberts, half of the people who attended the funeral came from the Amish community. One Amish man held Roberts' sobbing father in his arms reportedly as long as an hour to comfort him. As you might expect, media from all over were there to cover the event. Reporters, and I think 
most of the country didn't understand. They kept questioning, why would the Amish respond like this to a murderer who had taken their children's lives? On that day, and in the days to follow, the invisible God was made visible through acts of those people who don't use cars or wear stylish clothes, but by their acts of forgiveness and love, they bore witness to the invisible God. A Mennonite scholar, the Amish, hail from the Mennonites, going back to Menno Simons. They settled in this country, the, the Amish did, in the early 1700s. They kind of got stuck there <laughs> in terms of their, their culture. They liked that, those times so much. They also got stuck on the love of God. And as I uh, was going to say, a Mennonite scholar at Georgetown was asked to explain why the Amish community forgave Roberts. The scholar said, the Amish believed that God had told them to forgive, so they simply acted on what God told them to do. Elective love, not selective. When we read 1 Corinthians and what God says, we're about we live in love with one another. The question is, how do we do it? And the Amish would say, you just do it. You respond with kindness and patience. You reach out to others. You don't keep a long list of wrongs done against you. You, do, you just do it. As I mentioned uh, Members of the Amish community attended Roberts' funeral. Marie Roberts, widow of the killer, was one of the few outsiders invited to the funeral of an Amish daughter her husband killed. Marie Roberts wrote this open letter to her Amish neighbors thanking them for their forgiveness, grace, and mercy. And this is what she wrote because she saw God revealed. Your love for your family for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Isn't that interesting? That's atoning love, you see. And when God's atoning love touches us, that's what we do. Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. You see, at a distance, through the lens of TV or the print of a newspaper, it's evident that many don't get it. They don't take it to heart. They don't see sometimes the love of God revealed. They just don't understand it. I admit that. But a number do. Especially those on the receiving end of that love. Like the Waudani or Marie Roberts and her family. They see something greater than the evil and wrongdoing in the love of of those who delight not at evil, but rejoice with the truth. And that's what we're focused on. 
in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians. That's what Paul points us to here in verse 6. You see, agape love rejoices with truth. It does not delight in evil or wrongdoing. Paul's not talking about our delight in the evil we do. In fact, it would actually be a better translation because the way the word rejoice and the syntax of the Greek works here and throughout in general Greek is you don't rejoice in something, you rejoice over it or at it. And here it's clearly to be happy or rejoice at wrongdoing. Paul here is talking about the delight we can have when others do evil. Let me just take a moment to show you something. This word, this first word in white, Cairo. It says, love does not Cairo. That's the word translated rejoice. As I mentioned up at the top, it means to be happy, to, to be glad. It can be used to convey any of those emotions that we feel when we're just we're tickled or gleeful or happy about something. He says love does not rejoice or doesn't get happy about or at or over wrongdoing. But in contrast, soon Cairo, this is a, a play on words in a sense. It's kind of like sympathy, empathy in a, in a way. Same basic root word, Cairo, but by adding that preposition on the front, the word soon, it emphasizes our involvement in the emotional experience, the rejoicing with the truth. Because agape love seeks God's best for another. Not wrongdoing, but God's best makes us glad. Seeing God's best. In other words, when we see God's best failing, when people are not doing God's best, His will, His good will, the joys and the qualities and the things of His heart that He wants to see flourish in this world, the expressions of His own character. And of course, we don't see a lot of that. We see a lot of the opposite of that. But that doesn't make us happy. Even when we're on the receiving end. But we rejoice with the truth. Truth, you noticed, stands opposite of wrongdoing. When I think of truth, I would expect truth to be paired and contrasted because remember it said, it does not but. There's a contrast here. So you would expect truth to be contrasted with error. It does not rejoice in error, but rejoices with the truth. But that's not what it says. It, it compares and contrasts wrongdoing. You would expect wrongdoing to be paired and contrasted with righteousness or doing what is right. But you see, that's the point. Truth, this isn't just facts and factoids that we're talking about. This is truth that changes the heart. Truth that's truth. Not just cerebral, but truth in, in all of its bearing. It touches us and it changes us. 
And that's why when it changes us, we rejoice with it. Last week, Dr. David Ekman was here. He talked about truth is truth. Whether you like it or not, it's still truth. And, and that's true. But he made a very cogent and very important point. When it's truth to us, it touches us emotionally. There's an emotional reaction, if you will. A life reaction that shows that we've comprehended that the truth has reached not just our brain, but our heart. Touched us to the core. Love isn't happy when other people go wrong. James Moffat wrote a translation of, these ver- of this verse. Occasionally, we catch an insight into ourselves. We realize it's possible to take the light in other people's failures to be made glad by someone else's fall. Competition between churches and believers sometimes brings that. In the 11 years I've been here at Grace, I've seen a lot of people leave the church. I don't want anyone to leave the church. Some have said it's my preaching. I try to preach better. Someone say it has something to do with someone else here. We try to fix that. It's important to me. That's at the heart of the gospel. This isn't about just things on the surface. If this gospel is real, I mean, we work things out. Reconciliation with God and with one another. Practice of 1 Corinthians 13. When we came to this community, people said, well, there's kind of a revolving door. People go from this church to this church to this church. And they, I've discovered there's some some accuracy in that description. And I've also found that even as much as I want the Gospel to be preeminent in my heart, my preoccupation dictating the spirit of my life, when I hear that some other church is now losing members, there's that that enticement. You know, temptation is not sin. Even Jesus was tempted, but without sin. It's what you do with it. And there's some enticement there. And I think I'm touching something that we all experience. Maybe at one moment or another, we've all felt that. We just that little validation. Yeah. And there's a little glee, there's a little happiness, there's a little joy over the wrongdoing or the stumbling of another. When a pastor, you know, we all want to be a part of the best church in town, right? The church that's really winning. And when the winning church's pastor succumbs to sin, we're better than them. This is not love. This is not the gospel. We all belong to the Lord. We all belong. We need to check that stuff. That should not be happening. 
you might feel that compunction in your heart. Fight that away and realize, fight it with the truth. That's not right. That's not the attitude and disposition we should have. Competition between churches and believers. Competition between politics and parties. It's tearing this nation apart. And when the other guys, the bad guys, stumble and fall, or one of their senators or one of their congressmen gets caught up in an affair, oh, ho, ho, ho. Jesus said, A house divided will not stand. This nation is in trouble, and it's no different for his church. And his church isn't just the church on one corner in a city. His church is nationwide and worldwide. This really goes to the heart of some very real things and tests the quality of our love. How deep is your love? The lyrics said. I think that's the essence of gossip. We get together and talk about other people, mostly about their faults or failures. Not, not those of us here this morning, but those other guys... And one of the reasons is we delight in other people's failures is that we like to compare. And somehow we think that if tearing their house down or seeing their house crumble and telling someone else about it, our house somehow stands taller. That's not love. It seems like a small thing, but the Dave Berries of the world start to notice Nice to me, but not others. That person who spoonfuls some dirt on someone else to your lips. What makes you think they wouldn't spoon dirt on you to someone else's ears? Truth touches us. Rejoicing with the truth means it touches us. I like the game show Jeopardy. It's all about facts and truths. It's a game of knowing facts and truths. And there's a truth that we can treat as factoids. But we shouldn't treat the Gospel as a factoid. It's great to learn about the Bible, but we shouldn't treat it for Bible Jeopardy so that we can win the game, but lose in the end. When I was a child growing up, and I admit it was a while back, it's hard for me to believe. I feel so young inside. When I was younger, television was black and white. And a movie that I saw as as a young child made a huge impact on me. It was a movie called The Robe with uh, Victor Mature and Richard Burton. And Victor Mature was the star of the, of the movie. And Victor Mature was the head of a cohort. His cohort, his, his detachment, his detail of Roman soldiers were sent to crucify Jesus Christ. And he was moved by everything that he saw and witnessed. And I remember 
This is, <laughs> to this day, I thought, that man must be a Christian. Victor Mature must be a Christian. How could you play that part and rehearse all those truths and not be changed by it? Richard Burton, actually, he plays Marcellus Gallio. And he becomes a Christian in the movie. But he didn't become a Christian in real life. And that perplexed me. How could he not be a Christian? How could he rehearse? How could he know all these truths about Jesus? Who he was? Even witness him on the cross and not be changed by it. Not be moved by it. Not be transformed by that truth. Truth doers touch wrongdoers with the love of God. We give them the opportunity to witness. We give them the witness to see the invisible God, but not all respond. But that does not minimize or lighten our responsibility to love these people because we have been touched by the love of God. Or else we're no different than a Victor Mature or a Richard Burton. The man who killed Nate Saint, a Waodani warrior named Minkea, was uh, touched by the truth and love of God as it was displayed through Rachel and Elizabeth and the family and Nate's son Steve. Over time, it didn't happen all at once. Sometimes it does. But their persistent love, because it's elective love, it's not selective, it's not picky. It never fails. It never gives up. And Rachel lived among them. And one night while she was in her hammock, and this comes right from her journal, she was sleeping and she heard a noise and somebody was walking around in the dark. Minkea called out to me and squatted by my fire wanting to talk. This was the first turning point that she records. At least that she could see the, the first significant change. Minkea said to Rachel, whom they called Star, you said that Wyangongi, which is their word for God, that Wyangongi, the Creator, is very strong. And Rachel said, Minkea, He is very strong. He made everything here, even the dirt. Minkea said, you said that He could clean somebody's heart. My heart, being very, very dark. Can He clean even my heart? Rachel said, being very strong, He can clean even your heart. She wrote that Minkea got up, walked away. But the next morning, he came back excited. He said, Star, what you said is true. Speaking to God, He has cleaned my heart. Now it's Wa'atamo. It's clear like the sky when it has no clouds. You see, truth, when it touches the heart, it makes a difference. And we rejoice with the truth. We respond to the truth. It's not just a factoid. A topic for conversation at a party. 
there are truths that change our world because they change our heart. And that's the atoning love of Jesus Christ. A love that's out of this world. A love that sinners cannot do. But only the children of God. In a moment, I'm going to pray for us. And in these moments, I would like you to ponder, perhaps you've already pinpointed something in your life. God's, he, through His Spirit, has put His finger on something. And we don't have to go to the ends of the earth. If God gives you that opportunity, I know you'll go. But what about the little things? We, you know, I've tried to say, there are these dramatic, grand expressions of love that just bring, they rend our heart and bring tears to our eyes. But what about the waiter? What about our behavior in the market? What about at home with parent or parent with child or relative that we're not speaking to? Why? Because we've been wronged. We've been insulted. We've been hated. That's not the love of God. His is an atoning love. Will you love like that? It's an elective love. Mind you, God will bring joy and He'll bring emotion to your heart when you elect to love like Him. Let me pray for us. After I pray, we're going to have a closing song that will uh, give us a chance uh, to, to think about these things as we, as we leave. I'm going to stand down here along with pastoral staff, elders, and their wives uh, that are here that would like to come. If, if you'd like to pray about something God's put on your heart, we invite you to come. Will you stand with me? And I'll pray for us as we close. Father, I guess it's all been said. Now I just pray You would impress upon our hearts Your love. That like Menkea said, Our hearts are clear of all darkness like a sky without clouds. That's where it begins, Father. May we be armed with such right relationship with You that there's nothing intervening. Not because of our atonement, but because of Your atonement. And with that, Lord, may we love in Your power today, tomorrow. Thank You. For Jesus Christ, the work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.